Terra Nova, good morning, good to see you all again today. Daylight savings, I get an extra hour to preach, so I'm really excited about that today. Really good. I'm going to be going through a, a series of passages today, but I'll be starting in John 14 through 16, reading a few of those. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find your way there. If you don't, put your hand up and someone will bring you a Bible. We've been in this series called Ancient Upgrade, and, and what we're really trying to say with those two words is something pretty simple, that the church always has this dynamic tension of taking these pieces that are ancient, that are orthodox, that are eternal, that are true always about God and about his word and about what his plans are for his people, and bringing them to something that always changes, the, the time in which we live, the way in which we communicate, the people to whom we communicate, the places that we find ourselves both individually and as a church change on a regular basis. And, and the church runs into this tension of figuring out how do we walk this balance. And sometimes in history we have married ourselves so much to, to our methods that we've actually marginalized ourselves as an active church in our day. We're speaking truth, but no one can understand it because we're not engaging with anyone. We've essentially sealed it all up in a bunker with a cross on it, and we don't talk to anyone really about these things. At other times, the church has made the, the horrible mistake of saying, we'll put aside the, the depth of the message or even the content of the message so that we can engage with a, with a little more popularity, with a, with a little more broadcast nature to us, to, to be able to engage more people, but really we have less to say because of that. What we want to do is try to do what the church has to do in every age, and that's find the point of discernment of the incarnation. What does it mean to follow after our Lord who definitely left a place that was different than the place he came to? He left heaven to come to first century Palestine. He took on a culture to be able to communicate truth, eternity meeting time. And how does the church do that, walking through that balance? We just finished up a, a subsection of this on, on Christology, on the birth and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. If there's one piece that I would say is most critical in those pieces of orthodoxy that we hold, that would be it. I'd encourage you to go back if, if you miss those sermons because who Jesus is, our Christology, defines every other piece of theology that we have. It's, it defines how we look at the church. It defines what we know about the end. It defines all of it. So we want to make sure we really get that right and strongly. Uh, we can never exhaust that. And I don't think God will ever say to a church, you spend too much time focusing on Jesus. Uh, but I think there will probably be some churches that he would say, where really was the preeminence and priority of my son in your life and in the life of that church? Today we're going to talk about one who works to uplift Jesus and build us to that place that the Bible will say is maturity and fullness in him, the, the Holy Spirit. Many times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we end up with a very narrow focus and a whole lot of distraction and confusion. It ends up being about a couple of passages on the gifts, and people argue back and forth on, on how those miraculous signs and wonders work, don't work, how they're engaged, how we don't engage them. We, we want to be careful about that. The balance always has to be get back to the Bible. We can end up with such strong residue that stays from the way we were brought up in church to particular settings and circumstances of our time that we sometimes just have to like shake the etch-a-sketch, so to speak, and get back to the Bible and say, what, what does the Bible say uh, about this topic? And that's going to be especially true about the Holy Spirit as we try to move towards a biblical understanding of the Spirit today. I'm going to get to a place where we talk about the gifts some, but that's not going to be the predominant focus because the Holy Spirit is a lot more than just two or three passages on spiritual gifts. 
I'm going to talk about, if there was a roadmap for today, six words and try to flesh out the depth that the Bible gives about the Holy Spirit under these categories. Creation, communication, identity, purity, unity, and maturity. Creation, communication, identity, purity, unity, and maturity. I put together a, a compilation of verses from John 14, 15, and 16, which is where Jesus is, is preparing his disciples for when he leaves and the Holy Spirit being introduced to them as the one who will come and comfort and guide and teach them. So we'll turn there in the Word. Uh, it'll be up on the screen as well, John 14 through 16. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I live, leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away, the Helper will not come. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray together. Father God, we live in that time that Jesus prepared the church for, where the Spirit would be in us and with us, a time, Lord, that you told us was to our advantage. We ask today that you would help us to have open hearts as your word declares the work and nature of this Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to experience the advantage of knowing. God, we confess so many times we would just want to sit with Jesus, which we know is a good thing. But to, to hear you tell us again, it's better for us that we have the Spirit in us. We, we want to be able to embrace that. We, we want to be able to fully experience your gift to us now and what that promise is for eternity, Lord. What it means that you have your Spirit sealing us. Lord, in this time, we just ask that you would let the Spirit do the work that he does. Help us to receive it well. Let us be convicted of sin, God. Let us be able to hear what those sins are, to turn from them, repent, so that those spaces that we've now occupied with that darkness, with our own nature, can be given over to Jesus, that things that belong to him can be taken and put in that place that we can bring glory to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When, when we look at the history of the church, the Holy Spirit is, is present before we even are using the word church. If you started in Genesis and you look at the creation account, you find the Spirit hovering upon this void and empty world, building what's going to be. 
When we see the start of the church at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you see the spirit in full evidence coming like a rushing wind and with flaming tongues, and, and you see people who were once afraid to be identified as people who were with Jesus now speaking boldly, but also speaking in a way that, that seems even beyond some of their education. They're, they're quoting scripture fluidly and speaking with this power. There seems to be a, a truth and a power to them that, that is beyond them because of the Spirit's presence. We see it happen when the church moves from being a Jewish church to a church that also brings in the Gentiles. When Cornelius, the, the first Jewish convert, is converted and, and these same signs fall upon him because Peter and the disciples say it happened to him just like it did to us at that day. And since then, the church has tried to figure out, how does this happen? What are these miraculous things that come upon the people of the church at different times? How do we engage this? Is, is this for now? Does, was this for disciples? Is, is this different today? Is there more to come from this? And, and there, there's been constant movement on how the church has viewed this. You can look at church history just a couple centuries after the apostles, and, the, and there are historians or church fathers who are saying things like, man, it's not like it was when we read the book of Acts. We, we just don't see that now. And then you can find other writers in almost the same period who are saying, and we're so thankful that it's a lot like it was in the book of Acts that we're actually seeing these things. And there seems to be different experiences at different times. At some points in church history, you can find just reactive imbalances to what one group said the Holy Spirit was doing. And there's just something pendular in the nature of human beings to overreact, right? When we go too far one way, immediately people go rushing back the other way. And we can find these places where, where there are people who are saying, well, you know what? I can show you that the Bible says these gifts aren't in effect today and they will camp there. And then shortly after, there'll be a reaction of people who are saying, not only do those exist, we think explosively many other things should exist as well. And both sides will say, here's my verse, or here's my verses for it. I'm always a little bit on guard when I hear someone talk about, here's my verse for this whole piece of theology, versus here's what the Bible says about this. Because it's not biblical, just because you can find a verse that says it, if you present it in a distorted proportion that the Bible does not know. If like a funhouse mirror, you make the verse you really like huge, and say that, that's the entire body on that passage right there, or you make the one that really would threaten your theology really small and thin, and you play that game of saying, let me distort the proportion so I can still claim it's biblical. We, we don't want to misuse the Bible, but we want to be in the Bible to see what it says. We, we want to be able to dig deeply into the veins of, of what the Bible says about the Spirit in our contemporary time. We, we don't want to miss the Spirit. I mean, that, that would be the deadly reaction we could have is, man, it's so confusing. There's so much division over this topic. Let's just not touch it. I, I've seen churches that do this with a lot of topics. Oh, man, we don't agree on these things, so, so let's only talk about Jesus and salvation. Man, it, it's, one, it's just poor following after the Bible. Two, it's just cowardly. And three, you can fill it on your own. I don't really have a third, but I feel like there should be one there. So that's your homework. Find out a third, email it to me at some point. Um, pastorally, here's what that looks like for us as a church at Terra. We have people who are from all different perspectives on the issues of the Holy Spirit. If I had to break it up into four groups, and I'll, I'll number them one through four, uh, these are the categories, I would say, of people who are at Terra and outside of Terra who would react to the Holy Spirit in different ways. One would be, on the far extreme side, the cessationist movement. 
who would say that the Holy Spirit has ceased doing miraculous sign gifts. He just he doesn't do that since the scriptures were written, since the canon was closed, since that was revealed. There's no need for that anymore. Now, to be fair to those folks, they will not say the Holy Spirit does nothing. It's not that he moved to the west coast of Florida after the Bible was written. He still convicts of sin, he still seals, he still leads people, but they'll say that peace doesn't exist anymore. There'll be different levels of groups who respond to that. Some, some just conservative, some excessive on the whole thing. On the far other extreme of four, would be those people who would say what happened in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, that should happen every single day and more. E- even though apparently that isn't what happened with the apostles, because when that first Gentile converted and they said, oh, it was like it was back at Pentecost, they didn't say, oh, it was like it was yesterday. You know, Acts 2 seems to be in Acts 2. But there will be people who will say that and sometimes more. They might even say, unless you show certain evidence of certain gifts, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Then there would be twos and threes. The, the number two group would say, I'm genuinely open. Uh, I've seen the work of the Spirit supernaturally at different times in my life. It may be something as simple as, as I was reading the Bible one day, and I just knew I had insight differently than other times. Or, or God had led me and spoke to me in certain ways that I just knew was divine. So I'm, I'm open, however I'm cautious. I've seen a big bowl full of crazy at times on this issue, so I'm, I'm a little bit guarded on jumping in. And then there would be people who were threes, who would say, you know, I, I, I grew up in this tradition, I know this, I've seen this, I've experienced these, these workings of the Spirit, um, I expect it. And I actually think maybe there'll be more coming at some point in a deeper way. If I had to say overall where most people at Terra, we have a few ones and fours, but the vast majority I would put us almost solidly at a 2.5. I mean, we would triangulate right about in the middle. We have people who come from both of those groups who've ended up at Terra. The funny thing is some of the people who came from the more one and two group have moved over to the three because they were just starved from that. And the groups who sometimes were like three and fours have said, we've seen enough, we're moving more towards the two and the one group. So we have an interesting group that represents all of those people from the ones who primarily would say we're expectant but cautious and, and the ones who would be saying, yeah, we, we expect it and we think it actually may be maybe more ongoing than we really even talk about sometimes at, at our church or any other church. So as the pastor here, Tara, one of the pastors, I would say this for sure. I, I want us to see the Spirit's work. N- not a hesitation in me. I want us to be able to dig deeply into what the Bible says and engage in those ways. Um, I would describe myself as a, a, a quiet charismatic on some level, only because if I told people the few incidents that I don't make a big deal out of where, where God has revealed something or spoke something, I know the people who were ones would say, you're an insane Pentecostal. But if I told them how unfrequently that happened, the Pentecostals would say, well, you're, you're keeping the spirit in a box. So I would say, yeah, I, I see these things. I, I want us to engage because I know this much. If we neglect the spirit when it comes to being the church, we will be like an empty structure. We'll have the design of the church. We might have the intellectual capacities to talk about the church, even to talk about theology. But we will lack the power of the church. We will lack exactly what Jesus said. The one who comes to, to bring us to our advantage, the power to take from what is Christ and give it to us, distribute it among us, that we could glorify God. And we need that. We need to be able to learn and grow in these areas. 
So before I get into parsing out some of those words, I want to throw out some things that I've observed from people here and other places as well. It's not just all that I've heard here, where, where you might have some difficulties that I'd like to see you get over as we talk about this topic. For some people, it's an all or nothing mentality. You want to either be ones or fours. You, you lack tact and subtlety. Welcome, I'll probably see you at those meetings. And, and those people would say, man, I either just want to be so clear that I can put it aside because that's easy, or I want everything and more instantly. You're going to have to understand there are areas that take time and growth. There's, there's a lot of areas that call us for overlapping subtleties and not something as simple as a binary light switch. So stay engaged and listen to the big story and the big picture that's going on. For some people, it's that you're gift-focused. Maybe it's your own personal desires, maybe it's the church background you grew up in, but the gift became the big thing. What gift do you have? You're almost like the kid who asks after an exam, would you get on it? And they're just annoyingly going around asking everyone, what's your gift, what's your gift? And, and you're thinking much more about the spiritual gifts than who gave them, why they were given, and what they're for. We don't just want to be gift-focused. We want to be focused on the Spirit. For some of us, it's a matter of defining ourselves in the negative. We talk better about what we're not than what we are, and it just creates a generally defensive posture if we're saying, well, before he even begins, I'm going to tell you, if he says anything about clucking like a chicken in the spirit, I'm out of here because I know that's not true. And, and you just have this, that's not a thing. We have this list of stuff that, we're, <laughs> there's a lot of things out there, but that's not one. We're just saying that's, that's not what we're going to do. And we just walk in with like all six bullets in the chamber and the hammer back of, man, if he says what I'm not, I'm done. There are those who have a genuine sense of deity confusion. Here's what I mean by that. When we talk about the Trinity, sometimes it's really hard to separate one being in three persons. And yet, a lot of times when we start dealing with this is what the Spirit does, we want to make it clearer than the Bible presents it. Here's the Spirit's territory. He, he's here. Here's the Father's territory. Here's the Son's territory. And we don't want those to overlap with the reality is one being in three persons, there's a lot of overlap. Here's how I'd give an example of that. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, someone might say, well, you know what? Jesus said, I lay down my life and I have power to take it back up and down. The A answer is Jesus. Someone else say, well, wait a minute, not so fast. When, when that spirit-empowered preacher Peter talks in Acts chapter 2, he says it was by the foreknowledge of God and the power of God that Jesus was raised from the dead. Someone else say, well, wait a minute. Paul wrote that the spirit who dwells in us is the same spirit that empowered Jesus to be raised from the dead. So it seems to be the answer is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and that can be confusing. If, if, we, if we work too hard on this, we can make the error of saying the Holy Spirit is almost like an independent operator among the Trinity. And he's what he, here's what he does that the rest of the Godhead does not do. There's a lot of places where we just need to celebrate God. And there are going to be places where it's clear and places where it seems a little fuzzy as to who does what. That's okay. There's a mystery to the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about when he's speaking to Nicodemus about being born again. And he, and he says, the Spirit's like the wind. You, you see when it comes, you see what it did, and usually after the fact you go, ah, that's what happened. Right? We, we, we just watched Hurricane Sandy come through. Not so much rain, but huge winds. And we saw, wow, that, that was the power that happened after the fact. And we didn't know ahead of time. Even with all of our modern wet weather info, we didn't know. There was a map that had the possible track of the hurricane. I don't know if you saw this thing. There's a possible track that went way left. 
Possible track that went way right and one that went straight. I mean, my barber could have told me this. I didn't need meteorological equipment to say, it might go left, right, or straight, we're not sure. <laughs> but there's the, once it happens, though, we're able to say, hmm, that was the wind. And, and sometimes it's that way with the spirit. We just have to accept it. It may not be in a neat box, but we can say, ah, that, that happened, that showed up, and now we can talk about that. For some, the difficulty is going to be a, a background and a tradition. It may be the denomination that you're from. You have a particular background where you were, you were taught. You, you, were, you were catechized. I mean, you just knew what the answer was. And it's hard sometimes for you to either go against that, or if you're a particularly rebellious type, it's hard for you to ever agree with that. Uh, for some, it, it may be your, your local church background, not your denom. Here's what this church believed. This church was really important to me. I might feel like I was betraying my church if I believed something even slightly different than that. Worst of all is if you're a pastor's kid, right? Because then... You don't want to betray dad, and unless your age is 13 to 19, then you just sort of do it very naturally at that point. But you, you, you have to be careful that your tradition doesn't trump the Bible in terms of what's being said. Um, the, the last one I would give us a warning on as we head into this to really be aware of so that we can get around it or over it if we need to is subjectivism. And here's what I mean by that. The Spirit did something in your life at some point. You were just aware of it. You knew how it happened, you knew when this thing happened, but you've begun to think, this is how it should always happen. And if I follow through on those exact steps again, I can sort of mechanize it and make it happen. We, we almost become more superstitious than spirit following. It's, it's like athletes who, who have something good performance-wise happen and they adopt it almost as a ritual, ritual afterwards. Gary Carter, who was a catcher for the Expos and the Mets, he, he would, when he had a hitting streak, he wouldn't change his underwear because he was convinced somehow the underwear were tied to the hitting streak, which I'm sure made a lot of his teammates not real happy that uh, he was having success on the field. But we have to be careful we don't do that with God's things. He did something for us. So if I do the exact thing, he's obligated to do it again. Not only that, I'll tell other people, this is how it worked for me, so that's how it must work for you. I've read multiple books on the Holy Spirit where it seems like that's the case. They're not so much arguing, here's what the Bible says about this, as they are, here's what happened to me and at our church. So you should do these things this way. All of these things we have to be very careful because they could end up being something that helps develop and grow us or they could be something that really blocks us from hearing what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. W with that in mind, let's get into that moving towards a biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit. That, that first word that I would throw out would be creation. At the most basic level of introducing ourselves to this God, the Holy Spirit, we find him in Genesis, pre-existing everything else. And that's a good pause button reminder for all of us as we're pursuing God. Sometimes it's easy for us to become obsessed with ourselves. You ever notice that? Right? You get the big group photograph. How do you know it's a good photograph? I look good in it, right? But, but when we're searching after God, we have to do what the Bible does. It starts with him. He presents himself, the eternal one, the one without anything preceding him, before he creates his people to follow after him. And we need to be people who, when we're seeking God, avoid the error of saying, where does this fix me? What does it say about me? What does it say about my job? What should I TiVo tonight? It's, the, the Bible isn't about that. God is clearly the one at the center, and the Holy Spirit is presented, hovering in that void before anything else. He's presented in the Trinitarian passages like the baptismal phrases that Jesus gives out in the Great Commission, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He, he's presented as God. 
Because if anything else was substituted in there, we would, we would have a major red flag. If we said, we're going to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the city of Troy, you'd be like, wait, wait, time. That doesn't, that doesn't sound good on multiple levels. Let's not do that. If Paul had said, we're going to baptize in the name of the Father and Son and me, he's like, no, that doesn't sound quite right. Nobody protested when Jesus said, Here, here's the baptismal formula. We're going to baptize in God's name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because the same Spirit is God. In Genesis 1, when that world is created, it's the Spirit who's hovering upon that void and formless earth. In Luke, when, when Mary is told, you'll have child, and you'll have that child without ever knowing your husband sexually. And she says, how does this happen? She says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, the power of the Most High. And just like that empty world, your empty womb, there'll be a created thing in there from, from nothing will come something. That, that seems to be one of the emphasis of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Uh, like I said earlier, there's a great overlap, but it seems that that comes up for the Holy Spirit regularly. D- different people seem to have different tasks at times. If, if we're in the business world, you may take a lot of tests to try to figure out how do you maximize your effectiveness? What, what, do, what do you do really well? I remember one test that um, broke people into three groups. Those who were designers, those who were developers, and those who were managers. So there might be a woman whose giftedness was that she really could see that this is what needs to happen that isn't there. There may be someone else afterwards who says, you know, I couldn't see that, but you're not really good at figuring out the steps of how to implement that. Here's what that would look like. And there might be someone else who would then say, well, this is how it has to keep operating. The, the Godhead seems to have those kind of different emphasis, even though they all work cooperatively together. The Father is often described as the one with the plan. He has foreknowledge according to his plan, according to his will. He's the one who knows the day and the hour of when the return is and when things will end. The Son seems to be the one who, through his bodily ministry, Jesus seems to be the one who accomplishes the work. He presents the word to us as prophet. He gives up his body and sacrifices priests. He's the one who rises in his seat at the right hand to rule over us as king. The, the Spirit seems often to bring about the new thing. At the creation, the Spirit's there, the new thing. At, at, at the bodily creation of Jesus. At, at the conversion of every believer. The Holy Spirit was present. Regardless of where we're going to come down on what we think the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, one thing is clear biblically. To be a believer, we needed the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to make us alive, to show us our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, and then to show us the Savior and all of his presence, power, and grace. We needed the Holy Spirit to do that. There's a phrase that has fallen out of vogue in the church, but it's still biblical, to be born again. That phrase is in John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the, the spirit being like the wind. What he had said to him that he had to explain was, a man can't see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again, unless there's a new life that's created, not just a modified life. It's not just unless you improve, unless you stop sinning and start doing this, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. Not just an informed life. Unless you know this information and can say, yes, I agree with it, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Not just an active life. Unless you engage in ministry to the poor and the orphans, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. To be born again. And it, and it takes the work of the Spirit to bring about that entirely new thing. It's an ongoing process. It's what we're becoming. 
without the Spirit, and I'll try to hit on that phrase in each one of these, without the Spirit, we're going to end up with one of two things happening. We're going to be stuck right where we are in a really dark way or in perhaps a darker way that we thought was okay. The really dark way would be you find yourself discontented. You're depressed over who you are, the things you do. You can't find a way out of the life that you're in. You've tried a hundred times to reform your life. You can't even figure out how it is you'd like to reform it, what should stay and what should go. The good news is with the Spirit, there can be a creation of a new life. Even if you've been a Christian before and you're at this point where you've just fallen away, you can say like David, God, create in me a clean heart. I need the work of the Spirit. Renew a right spirit within me. Let your Holy Spirit do his work. There would be those who are also stuck but aren't bothered by it. You're satisfied. You feel like your sin isn't that bad, isn't that large. Other people don't know, so I've got that firewalled safely in my life locked away, so, so that's all good. I'm sort of spiritual. I do the right things, more or less, so I'm satisfied right where I am instead of God bringing more of him into my life, taking from what's Jesus and giving it to me, convicting of sin to remove that, and creating a new person. Because what you're supposed to be, and the Spirit is required to get you there, is a reflection of Jesus. Your life is meant ultimately to be filled with joy because you're like Jesus. You one day will see him as he is, and you will be made like him. See, it's not just to get you to a point where you can sustain your life, where you can manage to do the things you like to do well, when you have a couple extra dollars to put together, it's to a point where people would look at you and say, there is something so unique. I find hope because it's as though I see the shining reflection of God in that man or that woman. To have that kind of grace, that kind of power, requires the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit. Don't be stuck in that spot. Next word, communication. To be able to understand someone, you have to hear from them. You need to know what's on their heart, what's on their mind. If you're in a relationship with somebody, it's usually measured on how well that goes a lot of times. Are we communicating well? Do, do I know what's going on in your heart or head? Sometimes we, we can do the, the, the easier work that's ineffective of, of trying to guess. Well, I know in the past you felt this way, so... I bet that's what's going on in his or her heart or head, and we fill it in. Or we just ignore it. Here's what's going on in my heart and head. I guess I could ask them, nope, here's what else is going on in my heart and head, and we don't really listen at all. But the Spirit of God knows the heart and mind of God and reveals it to us. Let me put a verse up here. 1 Corinthians 2, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or for the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Jesus said, I, I give you the Spirit, not as the world gives. Those things pass away. Even the greatest things that you could see, own, or experience in the world pass away. But you were given not as the world gives. You were given the Spirit of God so that you could know and understand God. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit is what lets you understand God. The, the great work to express that, the Bible. In his last letter, Paul writes to Timothy as he realizes he's leaving this world, he's going to be executed, he's trying to put together this lean letter to say these are the most important things, Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That, that word, breathed out by God, it's the same word as spirit. It's spirited by God. It's the revelation of what God wants for you, what he's saying about Jesus, put by the power of the Holy Spirit into the word. If you're a person who's actually interested in following after what God says and maybe specifically what the Holy Spirit has, you need to be a Bible person. There's, there's no other route. And yet I hear people sometimes who, who are more enamored with an activity than what the Spirit has said in the Bible. We need to be people, if, if we understand even a glimpse of what God is saying, that this gift is so you can understand his heart, his mind, we need to be people who are going after this word more, more deeply, more consistently. Peter will put it this way when he writes about the Spirit in the Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he'll say, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Now, let me give you a context of why he's saying this. He's talking about things he experienced, like the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He saw it, he was sure he saw it, but then he says there's something even more important than that individual experience. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's something different about the Bible. Peter says it's greater than even the revelation he saw of Jesus in glory because that was subject to him and his memory and recollection of it. He says the, the Bible, authored by the Spirit, is so much more important. But we don't want to hit the place where we say we have the Bible, therefore the Spirit's not engaged because we still need him to explain this. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, Open the eyes of my heart that I can see wonderful things from your law. We still need illumination. Have you ever had this experience where you can read the Bible and nothing? You, you might as well have read the phone book. You know, you're just kind of going through, okay, got there. Or you're going through and, you know, maybe you understood something and wrote it down and whatever. You can tell the other people at the Bible study, yes, I read. And then there are moments where you read something and it wrecks you. I mean, it just guts you like a fish. You feel like everything that was deep and hidden and protected that you were guarding so you could be secure and safe was suddenly spilled out. And there was just a couple of words that just seemed different. They, they seemed larger in print almost or highlighted. And it's the Holy Spirit bringing about the power of illumination as we read his word in his presence. That, that's what the psalmist is praying for, that we can read, but not just read to get information. We, we read to see actively where that word is touching us. God's not just interested in you learning about the Bible. He's interested in you being encountered by the Spirit through the Bible. He also communicates to God on our behalf. In the book of Romans, it says he, he prays for us when we don't know how to pray with, with groaning. See, there are times we're really suffering, but we can still pray. 
God, help me. I'm aching. Please change this. God, help these people I love, man. Their lives are falling apart. I need their help. God, I just need to stop this sin. Those aren't the moments. We're talking about the moments darker and emptier still than that that the Bible tries to prepare us for. There will be a place where you don't even know how to pray anymore. You'll have moments where you're just not even sure God's listening. You're just on the floor. You're empty if you're not the person who's more demonstrative on the floor. You're just sitting like a zombie somewhere. And you don't even know how to talk to God if you want to talk to him. The promise is the Holy Spirit will keep that communication open. And he will pray for us when our groanings don't even make sense to us. That ministry of communication relying on the Spirit was so critical. And to our advantage, as Jesus said, all these ways of, of communicating that belong to the Spirit, who impresses them on us. It's his primary task to allow us to see communication in such a way that it will actually bring us to a place where we can see more of God, to understand more of his presence and truth. Without the Spirit, here's what can happen with this one. We can end up with wordlessness. We just don't value the Bible. It's not as exciting as something else, doing an activity or just managing our own lives. Or we can end up in dead intellectualism, where we can know everything about the Bible, but it doesn't really change us. As someone once said, it's not how many times you go through the Bible that's important, but how many times the Bible goes through you. Without the Spirit, we can end up with those, being those people who just see the Bible as information to learn, maybe a couple life improvements and tips to give us. But the Spirit gives life to the Word. The Spirit helps us to see the primary point of the Bible, Jesus. There are words and phrases that come and go in Christianity. A lot of times they're marketed in books. You'll see them on blogs. They'll be in articles. In the last few years, last decade or so, that the two big ones have been mission and missional and gospel, right? Everything was missional church, missional living, missional discipleship. Then it was gospel discipleship, gospel church. I think someday, when, when all the words drop, and they're not bad words, they're just limited, what we're going to find is Jesus is the word everyone was searching for. We actually wanted Jesus-centered discipleship. We actually wanted Jesus-centered churches. We actually wanted the Jesus life. And the Spirit points the Scriptures always back to him. Next word, identity. Man, identity is a hard one. All of us want to understand our identity. Probably for some of you, it's not too far back when you can remember what it was like to be coming of age and start trying to figure out, who am I? What am I supposed to do? Sometimes people guide us through that, sometimes not so much help. I remember being a particularly moody teenager one day sitting in the back of my car, you know, staring off in the space, writing poems in my journal. And my dad looked in the rearview mirror and said, what's the matter with you? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out like, um, you know, who I am and where I'm at. He goes, the hell, you're right there. And he kept driving. So not really a help, but these are the questions we sometimes have of, who am I? Where, where do I belong? And a lot of times we'll start trying on mass to get that identity, right? I am what I can do, so I'm the athlete or I'm the smart student. Who am I in the breakfast club, right? You're trying to figure out which, which person am I? How do, how do I be me? All those identities won't hold in the long run. They'll pass on some level. Here's where the Spirit comes in to give us an identity that is eternal and based on him. He seals us. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's what he's saying. You're secure. That's part of your identity. 
You no longer have to figure out where you're going, what you will make yourself be. You're freed up to actually do these things without it becoming an idolatrous identity. The Spirit is your guarantee that God's place for you, his direction, the coordinates on the GPS, the end of that destination is already set. It's, it's like the engagement ring. That's what the promise is. So when I met and fell in love with my wife, Diane, um, I eventually, pretty quickly actually, uh, bought her the diamond ring, which I've realized now she would have never known if I got like the fake diamond, just a word to the wise, my brothers. Uh, and I got, I got her that diamond, and, and the main reason was, well, one, I loved her and wanted to promise, but two, I didn't want any other guy talking to her. I wanted to ice that finger. And, and it was two years before we got married. Um, while, while my mother-in-law was not sure that day was ever going to arrive, Diane knew that was a guarantee, that we were going to get married, even though calendar pages kept turning and turning like those montage movie scenes. But uh, I gave her that ring to say, you're mine, I'm yours. It's, it's just a matter of time. This promise won't be broken. God says that with the Spirit. There may be moments when you feel distant. There may be moments when you feel like, man, going through time is too rough. There may be moments where you wonder, when did my life become about something so near to me, like my job or money? And God says, well, don't, don't you know? I've given you the Spirit as your guarantee. That Spirit indwells us. It's, it's the promise, not just of security, but of the power of the kingdom to come. When Jesus opened the scroll and read in the synagogue from the prophet Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach. And he went through the message of healing and freedom and liberty to the captives and all the things that the kingdom will bring. The indwelling power of the spirit says, these things are true and will happen. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. You're secure, there's a future, and you're not alone. You now belong to God. That the Spirit, it says in Romans 8.16, testifies with our spirit that we're the children of God. We have an identity. We have a Father under whom we belong, who provides for us, protects us, and we grow to be like him. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter will say. Without the Spirit, we will have idolatry as misplaced identity. It may not seem that dark. You may not mean it in those ways, but that's what will happen. You'll start to, instead of being accepted in the beloved, instead of knowing you're not alone, you'll want someone else to carry that. You'll look for a friend, a family member, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a spouse and say, I need to put on you all those things that I need to be accepted and loved. And it will break because they were not designed to carry that. For, for some of you, it'll be purpose. You, you won't know what, what it's all about, where you're supposed to be going. If the Spirit's supposed to be telling you the kingdom power is with you and it will grow into the fullness of the kingdom, you'll start trying to make your activities your identity. I do this job, I, I, I have this athletic habit, I, I'm intellectually acceptable here, and what I do gives me value, and it will break. There's always going to be someone smarter, faster, better. And those things weren't meant to hold that. For some, it'll be security. You, you'll try to control your life, your calendar, you'll try to get enough money, you'll, you'll try to have enough popularity and friends where you can say, now I'm secure, I'm safe, this can't be taken away from me. It was never meant to hold that. These are things only held by the Spirit. In the spirit, we become something else. We become marked, we become owned, we become child, we become a signal of a promise. Purity. He's called the Holy Spirit. It's the thing for which he's most known and the impact he wants to have on us. He'll, he'll convince the world, convict the world of sin, Jesus said. 
that mark gets really clear because those roads, as they go on, diverge more and more. They're not parallel tracks in unholiness. They're, they're absolutely antipolar tracks, even though at some points in your life, they may not look that different. Give them time, they will. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. Both things start as little seeds, but then grow into something else. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the works you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there's no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. See, you could be at a point where you're saying, my sin isn't that bad. No one really notices it that much. I keep it under control. I I enjoy some of it, or at least it seems that I do. Sometimes I get a little out of control and ask for forgiveness, but it's all working fairly well. Just wait. As those branches extend, as that fruit comes through, you will see more and more your own death and demise and all that sin. What would seem pleasurable for a little while will actually become not just evident to you, but to everyone else. Just wait. When you're fantasizing about the sin that you would like to do that you think would be pleasurable, Fantasize the whole way through. Don't just take the 10 or 15 minutes that you think would be fun. Fantasize what would happen if people that you knew found out about it, your, your family. Fantasize that you have your job and career ruined. Fantasize all the negative things. That you'll realize this is death. The fruit of the Spirit has to be grown by the Spirit. It can't be done in the flesh. You can try for a little while. You can white-knuckle it and say, I'm going to be more joyful. And you can walk around like this. You don't seem joyful. You seem like a used car salesman. You're just way too happy over nothing. You, you can't make these things happen on your own. I, I've tried it. Um, a friend of mine a little while back said to me, Ed, I got to tell you, man, you give me permission to speak into your life. One of your big problems is impatience. And he went to say the next sentence. I kid you not. I interrupted him and said, I know. I'm, I'm working on that. And I realized, oh, darn it, that didn't go so well. I just interrupted the guy telling me I'm impatient. You can't get to these things on your own. They have to be the fruit of the Spirit, and that takes time. Fruit from a little teeny seed up to a tree, then gets pruned. You have to let the Spirit of God do its work. Sometimes we want to seek the Spirit, I think, just to shortcut the process. God, make the miracle happen to make me this now. What if the process is the work of the Spirit? Growing and pruning until one point you realize, I've begun to be a person who exhibits patience. And when people say this to me, I can tell them, not I, but the grace of God in me. Unity. Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, Paul writes, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
there's a bond of the Spirit that brings a oneness and unity. The Spirit isn't meant to just satisfy your individual spiritual questions, desires, or empower you individually. It's always about the people of God as a whole. God is working and gifting and empowering people to bring us together. Sometimes it's, it's the most unlikely group of people. Unity doesn't take away diversity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. The world's often been confused throughout history at who gets along together in the church, whether it was warring ethnic groups, different economic groups, whether it were people who were of different genders at the time that were usually separated completely in their culture. People often look at the church and say, it's amazing. Not just that they're there. Anyone can do that, show up and hear a lecture on religious stuff and leave. But to actually be people who are humble before one another, patient with one another, bearing with one another in love, and are so different. Think about the 12 that Jesus called. Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were nationalists, freedom fighters, slash terrorists, depending which side of the line you fall on. Um, They were particularly good at catching Roman soldiers or uh, traitors and cutting their heads off. Then there's Matthew, a tax collector, a collaborator with Rome, who'd given up his calling as a Levite, a priest to the people, in order to be a corrupt official and take money for himself. The equation of Simon plus Matthew minus Jesus equals one guy without a head. But suddenly you put Jesus in that equation, and you have people who are following passionately after Jesus together, bearing with one another, patient with one another, loving one another. What they thought was their great identity, what they thought they would kill and live and die and make money for, was not as important. The bond of the Spirit had changed them. They knew cause, they knew passion, but this was different. This had to be a work only God could do. You ever been a part of a group where it just feels right? You just feel alike. I remember being at a Springsteen concert with some friends, and Springsteen concerts are big events, right? I mean, the people there are singing at the top of their lungs. I mean, the guy's 97 and still putting on a three-hour show, so it's like, it's really impressive. And, and we're, we're, we're singing, I think it was Badlands, like at the top of our lungs. I'm like, man, this just feels right to be here screaming and singing. And I just felt like, man, I really belong here. This is, this is almost like just being with a community of people that you just belong with. And then I hear the voice of the Spirit saying to me, yeah, how come you don't do that at church on Sunday when you're singing? And Suddenly he ruined the rest of the concert for me, and I realized as good as those moments feel, there's something more that I'm supposed to feel, that oneness. Not just a oneness based on a culture or a musical identity, not just on a sporting event, like if I'm watching the Badgers and there are those who support the Badgers and bad people and you feel a part of or different from. There's supposed to be the success and glory of Christ's triumph that's even more than that. That's the oneness and unity in the spirit that's laid out for us. Romans 8 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, you plural, through his spirit who dwells in you. We will be together with each other and together with him forever because of the work of the spirit. Without the spirit, we will just degrade into the people we naturally are. We'll argue with one another. Instead of loving and bearing, we'll find the things that we differ on and just engage in fighting over those We'll criticize without solutions. I, I don't mind critics who, who have a solution, or at least a, a beta proposal for a solution. But man, I just I can't stand people who just criticize for no other reason than to moan about stuff. Um, so really, if there's something you see that can be done differently or better, Tara, you go ahead, man. If you have a vision for that, we want to help you to be able to do things better in this community. But if you're just moaning, please don't do that. There are those who will just isolate. 
Rather than be unified, they'll start to marginalize, move farther and farther to the side, and then send the email saying, Tara's not friendly. Yeah, but you've been living in a ditch the last week, not going to church. Yeah, it's not friendly. You know, we'll isolate gossip. Rather than talk about each other in love and focus on God, we'll find the things that we don't know about each other to talk about and share with someone else. Without the Spirit, we actually become a pretty bad group of people. But with the Spirit, we become a unified people with a common identity, a common end, and real community. Last one, maturity. This is where the gifts come in. I want us to take a look at two passages that, that lay out the majority of the gifts that are listed in Scripture. First, Romans 12, 3-8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's a big list, and yet I don't think it's the only list that could be exhausted. There's a whole other passage in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So let me throw out some definitions of these gifts. The terms may seem clear enough, but I would break, especially in Romans passage, two groups. There are communicative gifts. We saw that was the nature of the Spirit. He communicates. Prophecy, which is sharing more of what God has said, sometimes predictive, here's what will happen. Sometimes it's bringing back, as the majority of the Old Testament prophets do, what's already been said. Teaching, exhortation, which is similar to, to counseling. All communicative gifts. Remember the Spirit, we said, brings unity. There are a whole lot of community gifts. Service, generosity, leading. All of these contributions, they, they all have to do with, with community. The tongues with communication, the, the, the healing with the restoration and fullness, all these gifts that the Spirit gives, I, I believe are in play today. I, I don't see them every day. Otherwise, we wouldn't call them miracles. We'd call them like Tuesday or something like that. You know, these things, but these things happen. The Spirit brings these about. The, the definitions are presented in Scripture the motives are there as well. Paul's always saying, look, they're for the common good. They're to bring all the people to full maturity, Ephesians 4 will say when it talks about gifts. They're to be done with the highest motives of cheerfulness and, 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 and all the things that you're doing to the best of your abilities. They're to be done in humility. They're gifts. You didn't create them, but use them. If God's given you something, don't hold back. Because what you're doing is, is not just cheating God out of what gift he's given you. You're cheating other people who need you. This whole thing works when we serve for the common good and let the Spirit do what he's designed to do within our bodies. 
the purpose of the gifts, the common good. And ultimately, Ephesians 4 will say, full maturity in Christ, which looks like us growing up to a place where we're finally like him. Let me close with this. The Holy Spirit is the one who would fill and control us. That, that means on some level we have to have the faith to yield to him. There has to come a place where that one's harder. It's not as safe as, I'll let the Father's plans be the Father's plans. I'll let Jesus die for me and return for me. I, I have to let myself be led by the Spirit. They're actively in those listed gifts to, to keep in step with him, to be led, to, to actually look to someone who knows more to guide you through someplace. We've been led before. We have to let the Spirit do that. We have to let the Spirit fill us to the place where we start to see what a Spirit-filled life looks like. Look at John the Baptist. Look at Jesus. It's, it's not nutty, but they worship. From the time John's an infant, he worships the infant Jesus in the womb. Jesus was a person who was committed to the Word. He was committed to prayer. He was committed to service and the proclamation of the kingdom to come. That's a Spirit-filled life. So to find newness in what's going on to follow a call, obedience in hearing from God, identity instead of some of the idols that we have, most of all, Tara, purity. I, I just know we've gotten way too used to our sins and probably stopped calling some of the sins that we commit sin. And we have to become people who let the Spirit break our hearts again because revival only begins when two pieces of an equation happen. We recognize our sinfulness and we recognize the great holiness of God along with his mercy. The band's going to come up. We're going to celebrate communion. As you're searching through, I just want to encourage you Embrace all of God fully, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you're not sure where your gifts are, don't make it an isolated, selfish exercise. If these things are about the body for the common good, start serving. And when you find the body, start reacting to it. Man, when you give, it was just at the right time. We really needed that. Those words of counsel you gave, man, they really helped. Look for where the body is benefiting from your service. We're going to pray together. We'll celebrate communion. People will be up here holding the, the broken matzah, symbolizing the body of Jesus, broken for you, and holding cups of juice and wine, symbolizing the blood that was poured out for the cleansing of your sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a father of foreknowledge who guides, protects, and cares for us. Help us to know and believe that truth. Jesus, we thank you that you're the obedient son, obedient even unto death on the cross, following the promptings of the Spirit, both toward temptation, suffering, and glory. Help us to follow. And Holy Spirit, sanctifying one, please do your work in this place. Please cleanse us of sin. Bring more of Christ here. Unleash the gifts that we have held, often too proud to be able to let go of control and let you control us, sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes just out of disbelief that you have something more for us. God, would you please show yourself more powerfully in this body so that this church would be blessed, you would be glorified, and that the world may know. It's in Jesus that we pray. Amen.